0: tenacity. That was one of my favorite words as a kid. And you think, why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, I loved hockey as a kid. In fact, my parents tell me that after cow, which we had lots of cows on our farm as a kid, after cow, hockey was my next word. Uh, My dad was a Zamboni driver after all, and so I grew up in a hockey rink. You know, one of my favorite storybooks before bed was the Maurice Richard, the Rocket Richard story. He was one of the greatest hockey players of all time. He's the first person to break the 500-point barrier. Uh, but this story of his was about the value of tenacity. You see, Maurice Richard faced a lot of injuries in his hockey playing, and he had to learn to work through um, just that that sense of discouragement when, when, when his body would break in a hockey game. And, and um, you know... So I love the story, but I, I, I love that word tenacity. That was what his life and what this story was about. And one of the most bizarre things happened when I was a kid. I was five years old. I love this Maurice Richard story. And the Montreal Canadiens of the Richard era came and they played our old-timer hockey team in Salmon Arm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maurice Richard himself wasn't playing the game, his younger brother was, but Maurice was reffing. And they were even using mini sticks, you know, like the kids play in their living rooms, and they were schooling our people using mini sticks. It was unreal how good these players were. But because my dad had the keys to everywhere, uh, because he, like, ran the rink, um, yeah, we just went in the dressing room, and I had my book on tenacity, and all of the Montreal Canadiens signed it. But then Maurice wasn't in the room, so we went into the, the, the ref's dressing room, and my and. He, Maurice didn't speak any English, we didn't speak any French, but we worked out that we got his signature on that page. And so that word tenacity, you know, it's it's not only something we need for our personal goals in life, but as a believer, it's something that I've needed to keep in mind for the most important things in life. To be tenacious means to dig in. It means to to refuse to give up. It means to press on. It's the opposite of being flaky. It's the opposite of wishy-washy. It presses through to discouragement. In our text this morning, it instructs us about the most important things in life to be tenacious in them. When we stay rooted in Jesus, that means attaching ourselves to him in ways that will continue to, which have and will continue to change the world. Are you ready for this? Sounds like the beginning of a song, I know. (laughs) I just went through my head. Anyways, we're not going to. I'm excited about this text, and so let's pray as we dig in this morning. God, we're so thankful, I'm so thankful that even though the Apostle Paul was in chains, even though he was uncertain about his future, he took the time to write this little letter down, to send it to a little Jesus community, and in it, it, he tells them to be tenacious. And we pray, Father, that we would hear your voice telling us the same this morning too. We pray this, that in the power of the Spirit, we would hear you. In Christ's name, amen. So we're finishing up our series on Colossians today called Deeply Rooted. And I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 2. So it's Colossians 4 verse 2. Here's how Paul begins, well, ends the letter, I guess. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly, as I should, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, as Paul's wrapping up this letter, he is saying, enjoying the new life that you have in Christ, that reconciliation with God and with others, guess what? It is not just for you. It's not just for you. As we saw in Colossians, the very intro, uh, Paul says oh, t- to the faithful believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Colossae, who are in Christ, well, that Colossae and in Colossae and in Christ, he parallels these two things to remind them. Yes, you are in the realm of being renewed in Christ, but not only that, you are in Colossae. God has planted you in that city for this season for a reason. Your presence matters. You are there to make Jesus' glory and his fame known. So Paul instructs them, and he's still instructing us too. God has us planted where we are for a reason, to make Jesus look great in this city. And we're called to that. So the instruction now, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, in chapter 1, Paul prayed for this community that they would grow in Christ And now he's saying, follow my example. I want you to be people of prayer in that way. And that devote yourself word. This is a choice. It's a decision to be tenacious. Tenacious about the things that matter most. The Greek word actually, it carries the sense of attach yourself to. Like attach yourself to prayer. Attach yourself to Jesus. Be in constant communication with him. And then keep watching for what he's up to in the world. And as he answers your prayers... Be thankful. And that word watchful, it's the same Greek word that means awake. Uh, in, In fact, it's the word that Jesus uses with his disciples when they're falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, they're sleepy, and he says this, watch. Like, stay awake. Watch and pay attention. Or you'll fall into temptation, Jesus tells them. That sort of wakefulness, that paying attention to God and what he's up to in the world. Uh, scholar N.T. Wright, he says this, Christians are to keep awake. We're, we're to look out on the sleeping world which, as the object of God's love, is also to be, be the object of his people's devoted, i.e., regular, steady, and thorough prayer. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says that believers are children of the light and day. We don't belong to the darkness or the night, he says, so then let us be awake. Same word here, watchful and sober. Our wakefulness, our watchfulness is being awake to God's ways of love and justice in the world. In focused, continued prayer, we we gain a heart for the things that God loves. We begin to care about the things that God cares for. Like every year we partner with KRCC, the Kamloops Regional Correctional Center to send gift bags to uh, to inmates who are, who are there. And, man, this population, they often feel forgotten. Perhaps they have a sense of shame that is just on their hearts. And this small act of packing a bag and then praying for those who would receive it, man, we're sending a signal. As small as it might be, we're still sending a signal that says you're not forgotten. You are loved. You're not forsaken. My older brother Aaron, uh, well, KRCC was his address for quite a number of years uh, through a time of really struggling with mental health issues and addictions. And so I can't help but think that those who are behind bars, I don't think of them as outcasts, but humans with hearts and dreams and desires, and yeah, many challenges too. You know, it was inside that place that Aaron, my brother, really found a sense of rest and purpose. He was leading a Bible study with other inmates, and in fact, he led many of them to the Lord, to find freedom. And I only only found that out as I got, we got letters in after my brother's death. We got letters in from inmates that he helped to find their hope in Christ. What a joy that was. God is at work in the most unlikely of places. And to be awake to that, to be watchful for that is saying, God, where are you at work? I wanna be about your business in this city. So if you want to join in with some of that, we're going to have a party, a packing party on December 17th here at the church. Uh, You can come and just, it takes about an hour. We lay out all the different treats that we're going to send the inmates and we fill up their bags and we pray for them as we go around and do that. If you'd like to be a part of it, we're looking for 15 volunteers. You can just sign up on the office door. It takes less than an hour, but I really believe that we're participating in sending a signal of hope through something simple as that. When we're praying for those in need, who need to know Jesus, who need to know hope, we're actually participating in God's renewal of all creation. We're getting on board with his mission in the world. So Paul says, be devoted to prayer and watch what God does and then be thankful for it. Uh, Justin Welby is the current Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the kind of leader of the Anglican Church, you might say. He started an initiative just a few years ago called Thy Kingdom Come. Now, if you're a Bible reader, if you've been around the church for a while, you'll recognize those words. That's the words from the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we praying? Well, we're praying that God would invade and transform this world so that more and more people might recognize Jesus as king and find life in his name. You know, Justin's big question, what he's encouraging people to do is just say, can you think of five people in your life, that you know, that don't yet know the hope of Jesus, would you just commit to praying for them daily? Like just bring them before the Lord. Bring them often. That they might come to know and experience the love of Christ for them. Why? Why would we do this? Because I want all, I want everyone to know the hope that's there. Now not everyone will want it, but we at least want them to know it. And we can ask God to do his work in their hearts. Who wouldn't, want to share that we could have an eternal hope with others. Um, D.L. Moody, he was a well-known Christian uh, preacher, leader, evangelist in the 1800s. And you know what he did? He wrote down the name of 100 friends of his that didn't yet know Jesus. And he committed to praying for that list of people, 100 of them, wow. At the end of his life, 96 of those he prayed for had come to know Jesus. Every time someone came to know Jesus, he just ticked their name off the list and gave thanks for it. 96 of them. You think, well, what about the other four? All four of them came to Christ at his funeral. What about us? Who will be on your prayer list? Will you be committed to pray for someone until you see them wrapped in the embrace of God? You see, prayer isn't just a nice add-on to real ministry, you know, preaching or acts of justice. Prayer is work, Later in the text, Paul gives a report of Epaphras. It's the guy who initially brought the gospel to Colossae. He told people about Jesus there. And he's here now, probably in Ephesus with Paul, where this letter's being written. And Paul says this of him, Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. That you'll stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Now, prayer isn't just a tag on to the real work, it is the work. Wrestling, that's hard work. Well, it sure was with my brother, and if you've seen my brother before, you'll know why. He's about this wide. <laughs> a little shorter than me, but man, he's tough. Prayer is wrestling in at least two ways. One, if you ever feel like prayer is a chore, guess what? It's work, it is work. Well, you think, well, I would never want prayer to feel like it's like a challenging thing. I just want that, you know, if if I'm in the mood for it or if it comes naturally, I always want prayer to come naturally. You know what? My response to that might be, yeah, sometimes that'll happen. But not when you're tired or when you're really stressed out about something and it's, it's crowding out all your mental space. And sometimes it's just hard to shift the focus outside of ourselves and onto God and for others, isn't it? I would want to say this, all relationships that are worth anything are going to require commitment and perseverance and tenacity, even cultivating your friendship with God. Now, I find prayer, especially if I'm on my own, I find it really hard. I feel like I'm wasting time. It's like, I got work to do. I got real, real work to do. And so I find it really distracting to pray on my own. Sometimes it comes easy, but not always. Always. And so in those times, I often go back to the Lord's Prayer, to a set prayer to tell me, okay, yes, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's true, man. You're my Father, and I want your name to be honored. And I go through, and I begin to pray that, and it gives me language when my heart seems to fail, I often go to the Psalms and I pray the Psalms out loud. That helps to bring my focus when my mind is all over the map. Now, Justin Welby, again, Archbishop of Canterbury, he tells a story of recently when he was captured. He was doing some work in Africa. He was captured by a warlord. Uh, He was thrown in jail and threatened with death. And he said he couldn't pray. His mind was like everywhere else in the world until he kind of found a set prayer, a book of prayers that he opened up and he began to pray through them. See, sometimes your circumstances are going to make it really hard to pray to pray spontaneously. It was a set prayers for Justin that helped him when his mind was anxious and going everywhere else. So prayer can be a challenge, but that doesn't mean you should give up on it. Be devoted to prayer, he says. So we will. Yeah, prayer is wrestling in the sense of being difficult at times, but more, prayer is wrestling because you are actually grappling with the forces of evil when you enter into it. You actually are. Notice when Epiphras is wrestling for, he says that you might stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. He's praying that this little Jesus community would stay rooted and growing in Jesus, not pulled away by bad ideas or the sense that, yeah, we got Jesus, but we need something more than that. No, they don't. Paul's been telling us that all through this book. And no, you don't. But there will be a pull on your heart to think you do. There'll be a pull on your heart to think Bible reading, yawn, prayer. What a waste of time! And if you just do nothing, you'll be pulled along with exactly where that takes you. See, you and I have an enemy of our soul, of your life, who would not, who would want nothing more than for you to be like safe and comfortable and completely unproductive for the kingdom of God. That's what the enemy would want. Wow! I got a whole bunch of safe people there who never venture out to love people with. His love. That would be a win. Think of it. Jesus told us in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give you. Now, why would the Father give us whatever we ask in his name? Couldn't that be abused? Well, the answer is because Jesus has given you a mission to go bear fruit. If you're praying in that stream, he's delighting to answer your prayer. In Ephesians 6, Paul speaks of prayer using warfare metaphors. Why? Because the spiritual world is a world at war. As one preacher said it like this, the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they want to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom to ring up the maid to bring them another pillow. Paul is connecting prayer and warfare In the spiritual life. And you know what? I'm actually not very fond of war metaphors. I tend to be on the more sort of like, you know, nonviolent thought processes. I serve the Prince of Peace after all. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't do battle with the real enemy. And that calls for prayer that means battle tools that will bring peace. I know it's ironic. It is ironic. But it's true. That's how it's described. When we enter into the battle of prayer, we are actually working with the Prince of Peace to bring peace to the world. So as I read about Epiphras, I believe in what he's doing. I believe in the wrestling because I believe that I can't actually change people's life. That's God's work. I can't really change it, but God can. And so in prayer, I am offering up the broken world, recognizing that I'm just broken too, in need of God's grace, but I'm offering up the broken world to a father who loves that world enough that he would send his own son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I am lifting up that world when I enter into prayer. And I know that I have a father who receives it and answers that prayer. So we pray, we just do, in trust, with thanksgiving, that God will keep transforming the world even as he's transforming us in the process. So your prayer matters. Be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And notice... Paul then is actually drawing this little community into partnership in the mission of God with him. Paul begins the letter praying for the Colossian believers, and now he says, please pray for me. You need to reciprocate, but notice what he asks for. It's as profound as it is challenging. He says this, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should, do you notice what Paul doesn't pray for there? He doesn't say, pray that the doors of the prison would be open. I'd really like to get out of these chains. I would expect him to pray for that. I would pray for that. Paul wants prayer not so that he can get on with the quote-unquote real work. That's not what he asks for. I'm sure he would like to be physically freed. But he, he, he mentions the chains and he doesn't say it's a pleasure of his but more than his own freedom or his own comfort is that the door of this message would be open to be shared and that those hearers who hear it, that their hearts would be opened to find true freedom. And that's to be the, to be the aim of their prayers and ours, that this message would keep moving and changing hearts. So even as they are to pray for this, for Paul's situation Paul is actually going to be drawing them even deeper into the mission of God. Look what he says next. Verse 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. By outsiders, he means those who have not yet trusted in Jesus for their life. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See what Paul says to them and to us? First, he says, the mission of God is for every single person who's hearing it today. In that little church gathered in a home in Colossae, and for all of Summit Drive, if you love Jesus, you are called into his mission. Be wise in how you act toward outsiders. Be ready to give an answer. Oh my goodness, every single one of us is bound up in the mission of God. Say, I'm not an evangelist. We'll get to that in a moment. Paul is saying, actually, you have a role to play in bearing witness to Jesus. Second, it's the kind of life that this community and the individuals in it, that they're to display. That is what begs the questions. Why does he say they have to give an answer? Because people are asking them, what is wrong with you guys? You are weird. You love like that? Even at the cost to your own selves? What is that all about? So it's our lives that beg the questions. These instructions are translated, be wise in the way you act. It's a decent translation. A more wooden translation would go like this: walk in the way of wisdom. So be wise we think think about something. Walk in the way of wisdom means you've got to be acting out The way of wisdom. Now, all throughout this letter and through Paul's writings, Paul describes Jesus as the wisdom of God. So you say, what does it mean to be wise? It means to follow the same pattern of living that Jesus lives. It's the instructions in in Colossians chapter 3 that say, be, be compassionate, be patient, be kind, bear with each other. That's being wise. It's walking in the way that Jesus walked let that be your way. So Wright, I think, says it well. N.T. Wright says, Paul knew only too well the importance of giving the world no reason to criticize or gossip about the behavior of Christians. Blameless life lays the foundation for gracious witness as Christians make the most of every opportunity. Believers, man, we need to be eager to make the most of every opportunity, but that eagerness isn't an excuse for arrogance, The way we speak is to always. How many times? When? Yeah, I love group participation. Come on. Come on, church. When? Always. There's no, uh, that means always. I don't know. I can't mean anything other than that. That means our speech is to always be full of grace. Seasoned with salt. Now, salty speech was a common metaphor in the ancient world. Salt was good because it brought out the beautiful flavors of the food, and that's what our speech is to be like. That when you have a conversation with someone, whether it's about God or about whatever you're chatting through, that they would walk away going, "That that tasted good. There was no bitterness in that conversation. That was that was lovely. I like that. What do they have? What's going on? Be gracious in your speech now. Ha. Pastor Colton mentioned, because he read my manuscript ahead of time, he said, you know, salty speech on the East Coast means something a little bit different. That's like how sailors talk. And so I guess this is the exact opposite of that. Uh, Wright continues helpfully. Paul knows that a tedious monologue, like being preached at, it's less than useless in evangelism. Christians are to work at making their witness interesting, lively, and colorful. And at the same time, to ensure that they have thoroughly mastered the rudiments. Like, you've got to understand your faith so that you might know how to answer everyone. Our lives beg questions if we live the verse 5 way. If we walk in the way of wisdom, the Jesus way, people will ask us, what is different about you? But then you might say, well, how do I actually give this answer? What does that look like? Um, I'm just going to give you a, a few things. Number one, every person who you have a conversation with is an individual. Everybody brings... Their own set of experiences, good or bad, their unique hang ups, and they need to be treated as such. Now, we might anticipate that people in our culture have a certain set of objections, and they really do. There's some ones that you can say, well, these are common, um, you might say, defeaters to the Christian faith. These are things that people would often bring up, and they would say, well, what about this? And the God Question series that we did about a year ago, we try to answer some of those big kind of big-level questions, and you can go and just listen through those and learn a bit about that. And so it's good to have a sense of what the question would be, but you don't go into a conversation with somebody and be like, I've got my prepackaged evangelism set here that's just a plug-and-play sort of thing. Uh, that'll turn people off and will be actually—that's um, not at all in resonance with, with how to treat someone as a human being. Every person is an individual. They need to be treated with such. So every conversation about God needs to be able to run its own course. Every person needs to be treated as a beautiful, unique person. That means asking lots of questions and doing lots of listening. Christians gain the right to speak about their faith after they've listened to others with love. And that listening not only shows like genuine interest in someone else, But when we do give an answer, we're actually answering that person's questions, not what we think are their questions. Second thing, uh, you don't need to have all the answers. Oh, that's good news. You need to know the rudiments. You need to know the basics of the Christian faith. But you can say to someone, wow, that is an awesome question. Thanks for asking it. I have no idea how to answer you. Tell you what, give me a week. Let me do some research. And we can meet again for coffee because I'd love to chat through that more. Third thing, share your own story. And that is often the most important way for someone to get inside of the good news of Jesus is to say, well, how has God changed your life? And be ready to just say, here's my story. This is what he's done for me. And being able to do that, Justin Welby suggests, in less than a minute would be a really helpful thing to have. Just to say, here's what Jesus has done for me. This is why I'm a Christian. You see, people aren't argued into the kingdom of God. They are loved into the kingdom. And your story points out the source of love that you have. So rooted in Jesus means living on mission with him. Paul says, be devoted to prayer. Pray for those who need to find the hope of Jesus. Pray that the good news of the gospel would spread and live the Jesus way, ready to give a gracious answer when your life begs questions. Now listen to how Paul concludes these words to the church. Tychus will tell you all about the, new, all the news about me. Pardon me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he might encourage your hearts. Now, Tychus is the one who's carrying the letter. He's probably the one who opens it up and reads it out loud to the Colossian church. And when they say, hey, well, what about Paul's such, such, such? He can explain it to them because he's been hanging out with Paul. So he's going to tell them about Paul's life. He's going to read the letter, but he's got another interesting purpose. Verse 9, he is coming with Onesimus our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. Now, we're going to come back to this young man, Onesimus, because you might have just heard this and gone, Yon, list of names, what's the big deal? Um, This is explosive, what Paul is saying. Let me show you why in a minute. Verse 10, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've proved a comfort to me. Epiphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you might stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis, two nearby towns. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demis send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from them. Now, this is interesting. I'm not going to go into it, but the church of the Laodiceans, what letter is that? Wouldn't you love to have it? I would. Guess what? I think it's Ephesians, what we call the book of Ephesians. And it I could unpack that for an hour on the textual critical level, and we're not going to, but I think it's kind of neat. They're supposed to share these letters. They're meant not only for this congregation, but for other congregations, and guess what? They're meant for our congregation too, to be shared around. I love that. And he finishes this. He says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. Now, sometimes we need accountability. We need to hear someone say, remember that thing that God called you to do and you started doing, but you stopped doing it? Get back to doing it. Sometimes we need to encourage each other to press on in the ministry God has given us. To do it kindly, but to do it, to keep pushing each other too. Last verse, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. And he may literally have shackles around his arm, and that's why he's got a scribe writing for him. Paul's saying, like, keep praying for me. Keep praying for me. This is... And this is what we're doing. When we pray for the ch- persecuted church around the world every week, we're praying for others who are in chains because of their faith too. And then he ends with four little words, grace be with you. Now Tychus is the man that's carrying this little letter, but he has more than a letter. And I'm going to get you to put that, uh, that shot, the screenshot up there, Levi. This kind of gives you a picture of what's happening in this little moment. Tychus is carrying the letter, but more. He comes with this young man, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a runaway slave, and he probably, probably wasn't a believer when he, when he broke away from Philemon. He's one of the guys in the church. Philemon is this dude in the church. He's listening to this letter, and he hears about Onesimus. Ah, oh, that's my runaway slave. That's the guy that probably stole from me as well, and Philemon may be ticked at this moment, okay? But he's hearing this read out loud. And as we heard from Pastor Colton last week, just on the question of slavery, it was the backbone of the economy at that time. Masters had power, the power of life or death over their, well, actually over the women, children, and the slaves in their home. That was the norm, and now Paul is saying the gospel must transform this. Now, Paul doesn't step out and automatically say, okay, the slavery system is bad, let's be done with it today. He can't. That would be like me saying, okay, guys, you know what? Cars, they're not great for the environment. We crash them sometimes. It's really not a good thing. Put your keys on the stage. We'll see you guys next week. Um, we we'd say, well, no, our whole economy, our lifestyle is based on being able to drive places. Similarly, Paul can't just say, okay, slavery is over today. But here's what he does. He plants the seed of the gospel so deep into the hearts of his hearers that he says, this has to transform all of your relationships. And eventually, when the time comes, and I actually think it comes way too late. I think the church could have abolished slavery way earlier than it does. But eventually, the good news of the gospel has to make slavery completely obsolete. Remember, Paul said in Colossians 3, there's no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So Paul says that the good news of Jesus dissolves and makes illegitimate every way that we could possibly reinforce reinforce value distinctions among people. To say, oh, some are worth more, some are worth less. The whole Greco-Roman world is based on this belief that some have the right to rule and others to be ruled. Remember the quotes from Aristotle and Plato that we've looked at. And here Paul, he just blows it all up. He says, and it's not just in theory. And that's the point here this morning. See, Tychus, or maybe even Onesimus himself, is carrying another letter with him addressed specifically to Philemon, the slave owner. And here, Paul calls Onesimus our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Look at that language. No longer can Philemon say, you're my slave. He has to say, no, you're my brother. And Onesimus has, like I said, probably stolen from Philemon. He's wronged him in some way. It's quite likely that Onesimus runs away, he ends up in Ephesus, and hears the gospel preached, puts his trust in Christ. But now Paul is sending him back with Tychus. Perhaps Tychus is there not only to deliver the letter, but to give Philemon moral support. The ability to vouch for his new life in Christ, that he really is being transformed. Because Paul can't just ignore the brokenness within this church within relationship he needs to address it because the gospel is there to heal and bind us together paul has spoken of how jesus makes reconciliation through his death on the cross and now he shows what this will look like in a practical way it will have to have the same impact on our relationships too In the little letter that Paul sends to Philemon, we read these words of Paul to the slave owner. So, Paul says, if you consider me a partner in the gospel, and partner in that historical time wasn't like, oh, this is like this little contract that we can just break. No, you are deeply enmeshed in each other's lives and committed to each other. So Paul says, hey, Philemon, if you consider me a brother in Christ, and Paul may very well or a partner in Christ, Paul may very well be the person who led Philemon to Jesus initially. If we're partners in this, welcome him as you welcome me. Paul wants Philemon, when he looks at Onesimus, to see that Paul's got one arm around Onesimus. We are bonded. And so when Philemon looks at Paul, he sees the two of them standing together. Welcome him as though you're welcoming me. But that's not all. Then Paul takes his other arm and he puts it around Philemon and he says this. If he's done anything to wrong you, charge it to my account. Charge it to me. Verse 16, where Onesimus has wronged you, I will pay on his behalf so that all debts are paid, that you too can be restored, but no longer is slave and master better than a slave as a dear brother. Now, where have you seen something like that before? where someone steps into the middle of a conflict situation, stretches out his arms and says, to make this all be pulled back together, I will pay. That's what Jesus is doing for us on the cross. Paul is picturing through his words the very shape of the cross, arms stretched out to each of these men, offering to pay so that Onesimus can go free. Here's how Wright puts it. Paul, in this short little letter, has modeled the message he's preached. The message of reconciling love of God in Christ with arms stretched out on the cross to Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, slave and free. Here is Paul daring in this pastoral situation to be in the middle, in the way that Jesus was in the middle. So that there between heaven and earth, between God and humankind, Jesus stood with humanity saying to the Father, if if they've wronged you in any way, put it on my account. The healing of the world means very specifically and practically the healing of our communities, of the brokenness and sin and evil that brings ruin to the structures in our society, in our homes, even in our churches at times. And that's exactly what we're celebrating when we come to the table. When we're taking this bread, and cup, when we take those elements into ourself, we're recognizing that Jesus stretched out his arms and paid for everything so that we could be restored to God the Father, and not only that, restored to living a pattern of life that looks like Jesus himself. Exactly what Paul is doing in this little letter. See, Paul's doing way more than just offering theological instruction. He's enabling the church in Colossae, and Philemon in particular, to begin thinking Christianly, to let the good news of Jesus inform all of their relationships. And Paul, he pictures how this actually looks in the letter to Philemon. The question is, are there relationships that you need to see healed? How can you let the good news of Jesus Uh, prepare and transform your heart so that you can be a part of the healing. Here's what we've been seeing this morning. That in praying, wrestling, being watchful, aware of God's work, and being thankful, we are participating in God's healing of the world. And we now come to see that this is all through Jesus' work of making us new. And now we get to be shaped to be a, a part of that very same healing.